morning, everyone. Welcome to Citizens. My name is Jason. I guess I serve as the pastor here at the church. Um, real quick, um, I mean, Elizabeth was just up here. I do want to recognize her because uh, yesterday she just graduated from seminary. If we could give her a huge round of applause. She has her MDiv now. Um, we see like an empty hole here. I know our college students, um, a lot of them also graduated as well, but also want to recognize them. And uh, they don't know um, what they're in for with life. So um, please pray for them. Um, um, at this time also, if you're in youth or if you, again, if you have a toddler, um, you can actually head over to the library um, if you want. Um, you can obviously stay here, but over the summer, we're actually going to have a music program in the library for all of our toddlers throughout the summer. Uh, one, to give our children ministry volunteers a little bit of a break uh, over the summer, but also to more integrate our parents uh, into the life of our children's ministry, because we really see um, what we do as a church. Uh, our children's ministry volunteers do not as babysitting or daycare for an hour on Sunday morning, but um, really partnering alongside our parents. And so uh, we wanted to try this for this summer. Um, but yeah, you can definitely uh, take your child over uh, if that's something you're interested in. Okay, uh, with that, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. If you have your Bibles or an app, if you want to turn with me to Psalm 51. And if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, the NLT. And it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. Psalm 51. This is the reading of God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips. Oh, sorry. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. Amen. Um, well, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we are in a series right now called The Church We Long For. 
And uh, when we say church, we're not talking about the institution or the organization or a Sunday event that happens uh, for one hour a week. Uh, we're talking about the people of God. And we're looking to scripture each week uh, to look at what the Bible says about who God, the kind of people God desires us to be. If you remember in week one, we looked at the church that abides, what it means to be a people uh, who are deeply connected to Christ. And then we looked at, uh, in week two, the church that contends, a people who are willing to stand in the gap for the oppressed and the marginalized. And then last week, uh, DC preached on what it means to be a church that strengthens a community that runs together, encouraging and supporting one another in all of our respective journeys of faith. And today, uh, we're going to look at what it means to be a church that confesses, okay? A church that confesses. Now, uh, if there's uh, any way you want to kind of suck the life out of a room on Sunday morning, uh, you can talk about confession, okay? Uh, I know that confession is kind of a trigger word for a lot of us in the church, um, there's just something about that idea of confessing our sins can, that can understandably feel extremely invasive, may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, understandably so, right? For many of us, uh, confession was used by church leaders or authority figures growing up uh, who tried to use confession to control us or condemn us. Uh, for some of us, uh, we were coerced into confession through fear, shame, or guilt, uh, maybe some of us uh, have experienced feeling betrayed by someone who we thought was a safe person to confess to, only to have that confession be used against us later. And so I get it that uh, a lot of us may feel uneasy when you hear that we want to be a church that confesses. But for the same reason, actually, D.C. walked us through uh, earlier on in confession this morning, the same reason we've begun to incorporate confession even into the flow of our worship service is why we want to talk about today because we want to recover what I believe to be one of the most liberating and life-giving spiritual practices that we have available to us, this practice of confession, okay? Um, today, we're looking at Psalm 51, and this entire psalm is a prayer of confession, Okay, and the per person confessing uh, is none other than King David, okay, who has uh, just committed like a really horrible sin. Uh, if you're using a Bible app or you know, even in your physical Bible, you'll actually see a little note at the top of Psalm 51 that says, this is a psalm written after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Okay, so for those of you uh, who don't know how the story goes, you can read all about it in 2 Samuel 11. But one night, King David is walking on his roof. Uh, on another roof, he sees Bathsheba bathing there. Um, he uh, has these lustful thoughts. Um, and even though David knows that Bathsheba is a married woman and married to one of his own men at that, um, he decides to take matters into his own hands, summons her to his palace, sleeps with her, and gets her pregnant. Okay? Uh, pretty horrible stuff. Right? And, and if you think that's bad, David now is so afraid of being found out that he creates this elaborate plan where he orders the commander of his army to basically put Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, on the front lines of battle so that he's going to be the first one killed. Pretty, pretty bad dude. Okay? And, um, you know, when I, uh, when I, uh, and I don't mean bad in like the good way, like just bad, okay? And it's really funny because, you know, I meet parents all the time who are like, you know, I just, I just want my son to grow up like King David. And I'm like, do I tell him? 
you know, um, I'm not sure that King David should necessarily be the standard, right? Because this is uh, one of, you know, this is one of the heroes of the Bible. You know, this is King David, the one who uh, slayed Goliath with a sling and a stone. This is King David, the one specifically chosen by God to lead his people. This is King David, the one the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. heart. We're talking about this guy. And we're not just talking about adultery. We're talking about exploitation of women. We're talking about abuse of power. We're talking about murder of an innocent man. We're talking about some heavy stuff here. And one of the things um, I want us to realize is that the Bible is brutally honest about its so-called heroes. You know, I meet a lot of people um, every week who tell me they're disillusioned, you know, in the church these days because it seems like every day they open up the news and they're reading another story about another church leader um, who has fallen, who got caught in some uh, horrible sins of misconduct. And I always tell them, you know, that, that is so sad, but it's not a new problem. Um, it's all throughout the Bible. Um, and, and I think, like, when, when we think about um, confession, we realize that all of us are sinful. We think about the fact that even the so our, our greatest heroes in the Bible have issues. And I believe this is why we need to recover the gift of confession in the church because if you read through the life of David, you realize you don't just see the devastating consequences of sin, you actually see the even more devastating consequences of trying to hide that sin. And so in this short prayer, we're actually going to see a, a blueprint of what true confession looks like and why we want to be a people who regularly confess our sins to God and to others, Okay. Now, a true confession in its most basic form is saying sorry. It means admitting to yourself, to God, and to others that you've messed up. And as simple as that sounds, you and I know how excruciatingly difficult it is to say sorry. Right? What's that saying? Like that the three hardest things in life to say are, are I'm sorry, I was wrong, and Worcestershire sauce, right? Um, I can't, even, I can't even say Worcestershire sauce, okay? But um, I'm sure for many of us, we can't even remember the last time we said sorry. And that's a problem because we know that you and I mess up every day. And I'm not just talking about the obvious sins, right? Lying, slander, gossip, cheating, cussing out that person on the road because of your road rage. I mean, we do a lot of that too. I'm talking about even the not-so-obvious sins, the sins other people don't always see. Pride, self-righteousness, failure to care for the needs of others, failure to love your friends and your family well, apathy and indifference to the injustice happening all around us. We all have blind spots. We all have secrets and thoughts and feelings we're not proud of that we would not want other people to know. I don't know why, when I was young, I used to have this like huge fear that you know, someone would like hook something up to my brain and like broadcast on a screen like all of my thoughts and feelings, right? And, and I don't know if you've had that fear as well, but like there's some ugly stuff that happens in my heart, in my mind that nobody knows about, and I, I wanna keep it that way. 
And the thing about sin is that it's like a poison that permeates every aspect of our being, our will, our desires, our relationships, everything. And if you look at Psalm 51, in verse 3, David understands this. David says, my rebellion haunts me day and night. In verse 5, he says, for I was born a sinner, yet from the, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. For David, it's more than adultery, it's more than murder, it's more than something he's done, it's something that goes deep into who he is. The more he examines himself, the more he realizes, man, I'm a pretty jacked up person. I don't have it all together. And one thing you'll notice is that David never sugarcoats that fact. He doesn't try to justify himself, he gives no excuses, no disclaimers, he doesn't say, but I've done a lot of good things too, no. He's brutally honest with himself and with God, and he takes full responsibility for who he is and what he's done. You know, you and I um, are the worst apologizers, aren't we? You know, even PR teams that are paid millions of dollars can't seem to get apologies right. And we've seen a lot of apologies in recent years. Apologies from celebrities on the verge of being canceled, Politicians because of old tweets that resurfaced conveniently before election season. Church leaders who were caught in some form of misconduct. And I've read a lot of apologies over the past couple of years, and I'll say that truly genuine apologies are far and few between. A couple of years ago, uh, there was an op-ed in the New York Times titled, How to Apologize Better. And it was written in the wake of an apology issued by um, actress Roseanne Barr. Um, I don't know if... Uh, Y'all know who she is, but she was basically called out for a racist tweet. And in the apology, she said, I'm sorry, but it was two in the morning and I was ambient tweeting. Okay? Now, I hate cancel culture, and I could give an entire sermon about why I hate cancel culture. But even I got to say, that was a bad apology. Okay? Uh, if you remember Matt Lauer, the once beloved news anchor in the wake of the Me Too uh, scandal, also issued an apology that said this, some of what is being said about me is untrue or mischaracterized, but there is enough truth in these stories to make me feel embarrassed and ashamed. What both of these apologies have in common is that there's a certain level of self-justification. It's the old, I'm sorry, but, that but ruins everything. That but, could have saved a lot of fights from happening. I'm sorry, but if you hadn't said that, I wouldn't have said what I said. I'm sorry, but um, I just have a lot on my plate right now and my patience is thin. I'm sorry, but you gotta admit, you're kinda sensitive too. I'm sorry, but this is how we apologize. But when you read Psalm 51, there are no buts. There's no God, I'm sorry for what I did, but I'm a king, I'm kind of ruling a nation, I have a lot of stress on my shoulders, I made a mistake. There's no I'm sorry, but I mean I had to do what I had to do in order to protect myself and keep the situation from getting worse. There are no excuses or disclaimers. David says in verse four, I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. Translation, I got nothing to say except I was wrong. And I deserve whatever you deem a just consequence for my actions. Confession always begins 
with taking full responsibility for who you are and what you've done. Now, something I want to point out here is that contrary to what you may be thinking, this isn't a private moment between David and God. This is actually a public acknowledgement of wrongdoing. You have to understand that Psalm 51, like all the other Psalms in Scripture, were actually meant to be used in corporate worship. Okay? Like, can you imagine? We put all your junk on the screen, and our praise team led us in song through it. Can you imagine our worship leaders being like, Let's sing that chorus again, church. Right? You'd be like, please, don't sing that again. And yet this is what's happening. This is where Psalm 51 is being used. David isn't just acknowledging his brokenness to God. He's acknowledging it before his community. Now, I'm obviously not saying we're all going to come up here one at a time and share our deepest, darkest secrets. I mean, that'd be crazy. Right? What person in their right mind would ever be willing to do something like that? To broadcast the things they're most ashamed of in public. It's unfathomable. But why is it so unfathomable? And I would suggest that it's unfathomable because as human beings, it's in our very nature to hide. Let me explain. When you go back to the book of Genesis, before sin ever enters the world, we read that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. Meaning they were fully exposed and yet perfectly okay with it. And yet what sin did to us is that it produced in all of us a need to hide and cover ourselves. If you remember the story, as soon as Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree, what happens? They realize they're naked. And immediately they begin to sew coverings for themselves. They immediately begin to hide. And from that moment on, the default posture of humanity became one of hiding. In the very next story, not only do you have Cain killing his brother Abel in cold blood, you have him trying to hide it. In Genesis 37, not only do you have Joseph's brothers selling their younger brother into slavery, you have them trying to hide it. Not only does David commit adultery, you have him trying to hide it. Everyone is afraid to be seen for who they really are, and so we hide, and we hide, and we hide. And I don't have to convince you of this because you and I live in Los Angeles in 2022. We live in the image culture of the world, where we have social media, where we're allowed to curate a certain image and version of ourselves that we share with people in, the pub in public, and we're allowed to keep the other parts of ourselves that we're not so proud of to ourselves. I mean, this has not been a new problem, but, I mean, we just have so many more tools, so many more resources to be able to hide who we are. We can hide behind our filters. We can hide behind our wealth. We can hide behind our looks and our popularity and our following. Even our confessions are curated. And this is not to judge anyone or assume anyone's motivations, but this is honestly where we are as a culture. But you see, at some point, all of us are going to reach a breaking point. Because trying to cover yourself, as many of us know, is exhausting. And at some point, that veneer of perfection is going to start to crack. Well, what if I told you today that you don't need to do that anymore? 
What if I told you today that you don't need to put on an act? You don't need to be someone you're not. What if I told you that you can come exactly as you are with all of your flaws and shortcomings and still be accepted and loved? Wouldn't that be amazing? To show someone the worst parts of yourself and to have that person say, but I still love you. This is what we all desperately long for, not to have to hide anymore, and this is what confession gives us. You know, what's really interesting is that over and over again in this prayer, David connects his confession to joy. And that's interesting because, you know, to be honest, joy is the last thing I think about uh, when I hear the word confession. Now, I'm sure if I told you that after service today, we're all going to split up into small groups and confess our sins to one another, I guarantee you people would not be like, yes, this is exciting. This is what I came to church to do. And yet over and over again, David connects his confession to joy. In verse 8, he says, oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. And then verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Verse 14, forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. David confesses to find joy. Put another way, there was something about trying to hide his sin that took his joy away. Now, it didn't take his salvation away, it took his joy away. And I think that's a very important distinction because we have to realize that confession itself doesn't save us, right? You don't earn God's love by confessing your sins. There's no way you can earn God's love. God already loves you. But there is a way that you can live without the joy of that salvation. There is a way that you can live without knowing and experiencing that, the love that God freely offers us. This is why David begs God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I don't just want to know that I'm loved. I want to remember again what it feels like to live in that love. You know, every married couple here knows that you can be married for a long time and not experience the joy and intimacy of marriage. Right? This is why there are things, there are resources at our disposal to restore that joy again. Right? Date nights, counseling, sex. Right? These are all gifts that allow us. They don't, they don't get us married, but they allow us to experience the joy of being marriage, married. And this is what confession does. God doesn't just want to save us. He wants to free us. He wants to invite us into a new way of life where we aren't enslaved by the crushing burden of having to cover ourselves. And the thing about sin, what I would say makes sin so deadly is that it's not benign, right? It's not static. Sin always grows and involves. It's like a cancer. And the perfect environment for sin to grow is in the dark. It's when sin is kept hidden. This is why pornography is so damaging, because it's kept hidden. This is why uh, something, some small annoyance, you keep that hidden, you keep that inside long enough, can easily grow into deep resentment and bitterness, because it's kept hidden. Right? Sin grows in power when it's left in the dark. And as much as it can make us feel really uncomfortable to share our brokenness with others, bringing our sin into the light always diminishes its power. 
You know, when um, Carol and I first came to this church and we joined a CG, a community group, and on our way to one of our first community groups, we had this huge fight in the car. And keep in mind, we're meeting our community group for the first time. You know, this is a first impression. And, uh, you know, we're like, we pull in to our community group leader's place and we're trying to keep it together, trying to put on a smile, right? You know, we're, we're meeting these people again for the first time. And uh, we, get to, we get to their place and we walk in and my wife, in typical Carol fashion, is like, yeah, I'm sorry, we just had a really bad fight and I'm annoyed with Jason, so annoyed with Jason right now. So, um, yeah, I'm not good. And I was like, why did you do that, you know? Um, like, the new worship director at this church. Um, and, you know, in that moment, it's really exposing. Um, but you know what happened? Like, five minutes later, there was another couple in the group. They are like, all right, you know what? We're just going to say it. We just fought, too. <laughs> Actually, we've been fighting, like, nonstop. And so I'm really glad you said that. And all of a sudden, the rest of that community group was just all of us bashing our spouses, right? And, um, and in some ways, that like image we were trying to uphold, that was gone immediately. And yet there was a freedom about that. There was a bonding that happened between us that could not have happened unless we were willing to bring our messiness into the light. You know, many of you may remember this kind of cheesy illustration from youth group, but I was reminded of it this week because I actually saw a version of this play out in my own home in real time. But the story goes something like this. You have these two siblings, uh, an older sister, younger brother, and their parents tell them, you know, no throwing things in the house. You know, uh, we have these rules. Make sure you don't throw anything. We got a lot of expen expensive paintings hanging around. Well, you know, obviously kids don't listen, so the younger brother is just like throwing this baseball around, living on the edge, and all of a sudden misses the target, hits this super valuable painting that's on the wall, painting falls, shatters into a million pieces. Parents run down the stairs, they're like, what happened? And the boy's like, I don't know, it just, it just fell out of nowhere, I don't know, I'm scared. And they're like picking up the pieces, um, and all of a sudden, the little brother makes eye contact with his older sister, who saw everything. She gives him a little nod. And they're at dinner that night. They're eating. And the older sister's like, hey, bro, give me a glass of water. And the boy's like, you get your own glass of water. And she's like, I said, give me a glass of water. He's like, ugh, gets the water. The next day, parents are like, clean your room. Older sister's like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to clean my room. Hey, bro, can you clean it for me? You got it, right? And he's like, oh. All week long, blackmailed by his older sister. All week long, doing things that he doesn't want to do. And by the end of the week, he, it's just, it's, he's had enough. I mean, he, he can't take it anymore. So he, he's like crying. He runs to his parents. He's like, I'm going to come clean. I'm so sorry, Mom and Dad. You know that painting that broke? That was me. I, I know I did what I wasn't supposed to do. I threw the ball in the house. I threw it in the living room, and I, and I broke the painting. I'm sorry. Do you still love me? And the parents are like, of course we still love you. And by the way, 
we knew all along that you did it. Because your mom was standing at the top of the stairs and she saw everything. <laughs> and he was like, you knew this whole time? Why didn't you say anything? And the mom says, we didn't say anything because we wanted to see how long you would let your sister make a slave out of you. This is what sin does. True healing and freedom can be found, can only be found, when we're willing to bring our flaws, our mistakes, and our brokenness into the light. Because you see, there's nothing we could confess to God that God doesn't already know. And this is what David is beginning to realize, right? He's a king. So if there's anyone who has the resources at his disposal to hide, it's David. He's got all the wealth in the world. He's got all the power and authority in the world to hide behind. And yet here in Psalm 51, you see that David understands that there's one person he can't hide from, and it's the creator of the universe. In Psalm 139, David says, Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And so here David has reached the end of his rope. This is David saying, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of hiding. I, there's no, no matter how hard I try, I can't hide from your presence. David is exposed and he needs God to cover him. In the opening verses of this psalm, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Meaning, I can't do this on my own. I can't fix myself. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to purify me. The king of Israel is stripped naked, begging God to cover him. And all David has left is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. But here's the good news. That's enough. That's enough. Listen to what it says in verse 16. David says, You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. If we are willing to come to God vulnerable and naked with all of our flaws and faults and baggage, he promises to clothe us. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And this is exactly what he does through the person and work of Jesus. You know, when you look at Jesus' ministry on earth, so much of it was a ministry of uncovering. When I think about the woman at the well, when she encounters Jesus, she's carrying the crushing weight of multiple failed marriages. She's riddled with guilt and shame. She's enslaved to the lie that she's unlovable and unworthy because of her past. And Jesus says, you don't have to keep living like this. You don't have to keep hiding Come rest in me. Come be free. Bring it out into the open. And this is what Jesus did. 
moving from person to person, inviting people to step into the light, inviting people to lay down their burdens and to find rest in him. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We don't have to hide ourselves anymore because our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Jesus knows everything there is to know about you and more. He knows the worst parts of who you are, and that's who he died for. Jesus did not die for the curated Instagram version of yourself. Jesus did not die for the person you aspire to be but can't. He died for you as you are. The king of the universe was stripped naked so that you and I would be clothed. And because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, the Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That means there is no sin that Jesus will not forgive and there is nothing you could confess to God that one, God doesn't already know but two, that would ever separate you from his love. And it's this very truth that allows us to become a people who freely confess our brokenness to one another. You see, in order for us to become a church that confesses, we have to be both confident and humble. And that sounds like an oxymoron, right? Because how can you be both confident and humble? Well, we need to be confident because we need to be confident enough to be able to share our struggles with other people Knowing that it's going to take, uh, knowing that it could ruin our reputation, knowing that it could change the way we're seen or perceived by other people, knowing that it's really risky. So we need that confidence. But we also need to be humble. We need to be someone who recognizes our own weaknesses because if not, we're always going to default to judgment and we're never going to be a safe person to confess to. I mean, I don't know about you, but the easiest people for me to confess my messiness to are those people who are, willingness, who are willing to confess their messiness back. Right? It's not the people who have it all together. It's the people who are humble enough to recognize their own weaknesses. So if we want to be a church that confesses, we have to be both confident and humble, and I believe only the gospel does that because on one hand the gospel says we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope and when we get this nothing that anyone ever confesses to us is going to surprise us because we're going to say you know what me too I struggle with that too oh man I totally know what you mean and we're going to be able to say that with such confidence. Why? Because we know at the end of the day, there's nothing we could do to separate us from the love of Christ. We are deeply loved, accepted, and cherished. And so my hope and prayer for our community, especially here in L.A., where we're in a city where so many people desperately want to be seen and yet have such a problem and have such a hard time revealing who they really are, I pray that we would be a church where people can come and truly feel known and feel loved. Where we can all take off our masks and admit that we don't have it all together. That we're not the son or daughter that we should be. That we're not the husband or wife that we should be. We're not the parents that we should be. We're all weak and broken and yet so deeply loved. Today, I believe God is inviting us to come to be free.
to come and hide, not in ourselves, but under the shadow of his wings in who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's pray. If we can actually take a moment of silence, one of the reasons we incorporate a confession of sin um, into our worship service is that we want an opportunity for us to simply be silent with the reality of who we are before God. And I know that that silence can be extremely uncomfortable and it can be jarring but it's first in being brutally honest that we fall short, that we mess up all the time, that we're actually able to experience the joy of our salvation. And so let's take a moment, and I want us to just name some of the things that maybe we're not proud of. A situation, a relationship, a circumstance, something that is exposing maybe the reality of our brokenness, something that's exposing um, some of the things that are deep-rooted in our hearts. as we bring these things to God, as we bring these things out into the open, into the light, now I want you to imagine Jesus clothing you, coming to you in your most naked, exposed state, looking upon you with love, saying, I died for that, and I love you. Gracious God, we know that um, sometimes it can be extremely uncomfortable to be confronted uh, with our brokenness. There are certain relationships in our lives and there are certain situations that draw out the worst in us. And I know that all of us in this room can attest to the fact that there have been moments this week there have been thoughts and feelings that we're not proud of, that we come here with a lot of baggage, baggage from our past, things that we would never dare share with another person. But God, I pray that you would break the lie that tries to put a mirror in front of us and tries to to say that this makes us, these things make us unworthy of love. And I pray that we would bring these things honestly before you, knowing that we're deeply loved. We're deeply loved by the creator of the universe, and we're hidden in Christ. 
Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that we would be a church marked by candor. We would be a church willing to share our messiness with others. And that we would be a church that fully embodies the gospel where people can truly experience the joy of being fully known yet fully loved. We, fit, we thank you for your work on the cross that clothes us, that covers us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.